welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar Johnson. We're continuing our division preview podcast today, and we're doing the Southwest Division today, one of, I think, the more intriguing divisions in the NBA. I am here today with Jordan Christmas, aka JC, and Jordan Schultz. So, JC, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, man. Ready for the season to start. And Jordan, how about you? Oh, I'm same exact thing, just ready for basketball. We got preseason in like 10 days. I'm, yeah, let's bring it on. And speaking of bringing it on in the preseason, one of the teams that will probably be the most interesting in the league during the preseason, the Dallas Mavericks. And the main reason that they're going to be an interesting team in the preseason is the same reason that they were a really interesting team in Summer League, namely Dennis Smith Jr., who fell to the Mavericks at the number nine overall pick, a pick that the Mavs have some pretty good history with in their outgoing eventually, maybe, he might live forever, Dirk Nowitzki. But I was always confused as to why Dennis Smith got so much flack for how bad his North Carolina State team was when Markel Fultz had a very similar situation in terms of a completely dysfunctional college team, yet Fultz was the consensus number one overall pick and Dennis Smith Jr. fell to number nine. And granted, some of that is due to injury concerns, but he showed in Summer League that those injury concerns are probably not something the Mavericks are going to have to worry about next season. But what are you guys' thoughts on just how lucky the Mavs were that someone who's, I think, a really fantastic fit for them in Dennis Smith Jr. fell to them at the ninth spot in the draft? So when I was doing my uh, draft series for the 76ers when they had the third pick and that was before they traded for the number one pick and torpedoed my whole project I was watching a lot of Dennis Smith uh, Jr. games at a when he was at NC State and I guess some of the concerns were warranted I honestly had him as like my fourth best player just because his athleticism and his ability to run spread pick and roll uh, he's able to get downhill but I think some of the problems problems were his defense and it was kind of overstated what his uh, defense was it was bad but I mean most 19 20 year olds have bad defense in college and the team was really bad he really didn't have he didn't have any teammates that were drafted this year he didn't have any NBA talent around him so I really thought if he was in a situation or an environment where he could be coached correctly much like the Mavericks even much like uh, where he landed in Dallas with Rick Carlisle I think that's a perfect spot for him to land I thought he would have at least as much upside as the top five of the of this past draft I think he landed in the perfect spot I mean he has NBA caliber players around him he's going to be ready to start from day one Mark Cuban uh, said recently that he was the second best player on their draft board and it's easy to see why he runs pick and roll really well he could shoot threes off the dribble really well um he reminds me in a lot of ways I know that there is this Derek Rose comparison but he actually reminds me of a more athletic version of uh, Kyle Lowry just in terms of how crafty he is maneuvering through the pick and roll and just just how explosive he is it just jumps out at the screen I mean he almost murdered the entire Kings team in that summer league game where he had that almost dunk and I nearly jumped out of my seat I'm I think the Mavs got a steal I could see some concerns with him in terms of defense and things of that nature and why he fell. But I mean, I had him as my fourth best player in the draft. Uh, I think the Mavs have the steal of the draft. I, I would agree with you there. Uh, I thought for sure well, when he was available with the Knicks pick at eight that they were going to take him. But instead, you know, they went with a little bit more of a project. Um, you look back at what he did, you know, as a freshman in college, you know, 18.6 assists, four rebounds, you know, just under two steals. They, the team was not bad because of him. Uh, he, you know, he produced at a really high level. I think you kind of see uh, similar with him, what you saw with Ben Simmons, where he kind of got the blame for the rest of his team being really bad, even though, you know, when he was on the floor, he was doing amazing things. So, uh, yeah, the, the Mavericks had an absolute steal at nine um i really wanted my you know the bulls to draft him uh, especially once they moved up at seven um obviously getting chris down it kind of made would have made that kind of a redundant pick but i think you know he he definitely is going to outperform his draft spot uh he's he's going to be one of the top five rookies in this class i feel pretty confident saying he's also gonna almost certainly have the starting job in dallas from day one and for someone whose real strengths are as a pick-and-roll point guard, I can't really imagine anyone better to pair with him than Dirk Nowitzki. And Harrison Barnes will be a pretty good fit alongside him as well, especially after his breakout season last year. But moving on from 
the most successful part of the Mavericks summer to a very confusing and unfortunate situation with Nerland's Noel, where he asked for a max deal, got offered from reports from his previous agent, Happy Walters, got offered a four-year, $70 million contract, which he declined. And he then fired Happy Walters and replaced him with Rich Paul and almost immediately took the qualifying offer for next season. So he will enter unrestricted free agency in 2018 in a market that will have quite a lot of center talent in it, most notably DeMarcus Cousins. Now, Nerlens was a pretty good fit in Dallas last season, despite not actually getting to play that much after the trade. But what are you guys' thoughts on the Noel situation in Dallas? Well, when Nerlens got traded, I thought it was a good pickup for the Mavs, and and I thought it was a steal considering the assets they gave up to my 76ers. But I thought he wasn't necessarily a max player. I think he has the potential to be an elite defensive center. He's already a very good one. I think his defense can be a little overstated sometimes, and he does get pushed around on the boards a lot. But I th- I thought it was crazy that he turned down that uh, deal. I know he thinks he's a max player, but given his injury history and before the start of last season, he had elective surgery on his uh, left knee and it that just adds on to you know the torn ACL where he missed uh, his entire rookie year in the 2013-14 season and just given that he's not necessarily an offensive threat and aside from being a great pick and roll partner with a point guard and rolling to the rim and and uh, catching lobs. I thought this was the best kind of deal he could have gotten. And now I don't, I don't, I don't think when he enter, it's going to be interesting to see his free agency next summer. Cause I don't think, I still don't think he's going to get a max deal. I thought he would have been better served taking the four year, $70 million deal. And considering the culture in Dallas that I mentioned earlier. And now that they have Dennis Smith jr. I thought that would be just a perfect pick and roll pairing, but it really was a confusing and interesting uh, saga to watch over the summer. I really didn't think he deserved a max contract. Um, there was a lot of debate in Philadelphia. Should we offer him a max contract to come off the bench and back up Joel Embiid? But do you really want to pay a backup center 20 plus million dollars per year? I don't think you want to do that. And we'll see what he we'll see how he performs this year. I think this is kind of just a prove it year. When he, si- when he signed on, when he hired Rich Paul, I kind of figured he was just going to take the qualifying offer immediately that was kind of the next predictable course of action this is kind of going to be his prove it year but I still don't especially in an oversaturated center market now I just don't see him ever getting a max deal I mean what a weird year for some of these big men that are restricted free agents after seeing you know how reckless teams were with their money last offseason um, you know you got guys like Noel uh, Michael Green another guy we'll probably talk about a little bit later um, you know, Nico, there's a lot of these big men that are just probably gonna have to come back and play on these one year prove it deals. Um, as far as the fit goes, I think you said it pretty well. He's a very nice pairing there with Dennis Smith Jr. He's one of those weird guys, you know, that has, you know, over a steal and a block per game, but his defense could still be maybe a little bit overrated. But I do think there's some room to grow there. You know, when he, you know, his last year, his 22 games he played with Dallas, you know, eight, eight and a half points, just under seven rebounds, a steal and a block. Um, you know, it doesn't kill you from the free throw line. He shoots low 70% there. Um, so I think he's a guy that you could see turn around and get a big contract this next year. He's, you know, you look at that depth chart there. There's really not a lot there challenging him for minutes. You know, you have Dirk that's going to hold down the power forward here and there. But then, you know, outside of that, Dwight Powell, Josh McRoberts, Salah Medjri. I mean, do any of those guys, you know, really, really challenge him for playing time at all? I think he's really going to have a long leash to get in there and try and put up some numbers and prove that he is, you know, worth close to that max deal. Um, I don't think he probably will be a max player. Um, I, I heard a rumor, you know, at one point that there was, you know, that 17 million a year off on the table. And he's crazy for not taking it if that was true. Um, but he's in a good spot to prove it. Um, great coach. You know, Dennis Smith is an electrifying point guard. Um, West, Ma- West Matthews can bounce back a little bit. You know, there's some interesting pieces there. I, I still think they're probably like a 30 win team this year. Um, but, but they are, they're moving in the right steps or they're in the right direction, I should say. Moving on to the team that changed by far the most in this division over the offseason, the Houston Rockets. And I guess technically they made their biggest move before the start of the offseason officially because the Chris Paul trade went down on June 30th. But the thing that has struck me about that trade, especially when going over some of the other superstar trades this offseason in the other division previews, is just how much the Rockets gave up to get 
one year of Chris Paul under contract. They gave up a first round pick. They gave up Pat Beverly. They gave up Montrezl Harrell. They gave up Sam Decker. The rest of the trade was basically just salary flossum. And I think all of those players have already been either cut by the Clippers or offered only training camp contracts rather than fully guaranteed deals. But it is remarkable to me that the Rockets had to give up so much for Chris Paul, given the trade returns for other superstars. That being said, pairing Chris Paul and James Harden together in a Mike D'Antoni offense with an incredibly talented rim runner in Clint Capella seems almost unfair. One of the weird things about the trade was how much, I guess, not backlash, I should say, but skepticism of how the pairing would work. I actually, I'm of the belief that two great players on the court together figure it out. And the the mismatch or the pairing isn't as weird as it seems. I mean, Chris Paul and James Harden have been always great spot-up shooters and catch-and-shoot players. And not only that, Mike D'Antoni can stagger lineups to where he can have one of the greatest point guards who have who has ever lived on the court or have James Harden, who last year proved to be one of the best point guards as the top five player in the NBA. So you can have two top seven, I mean, give or take players on the court at all times. And they could play off of each other. They're, they, Chris Paul can kind of slow it down and set up the half-court offense, and James Harden can still spot up. He's ranked above in the 80th percentile per synergy on catch-and-shoot shots, 90th percentile on spot-up shots the last three years. Same thing for uh, Chris Paul. He's, ra- he's ranked in the 90th percentile consistently in catch-and-shoot and spot-ups. Um, so I actually see the pairing working well together. I don't understand the skepticism, but that's just me. I'm of the same thought there i have them finishing second in the west for the regular season um I, I, as you said you know great talents find a way to make it work i think in that downtown system there's room for them both to eat you know tons of threes tons of assists the one thing you kind of like have to worry about is they they basically got rid of all their depth um but you know at, at least they're not just kind of playing for three to five years like every other team as it seems like you know they're they're making some moves and trying to go at uh, the golden state warriors you know they might as well um you got a guy like james harden and he's only getting more expensive as his contract keeps going so you might as well put the guys around him to try and make a run at it now um a lot has to go right in terms of health for Chris Paul. Um, but you look at that Chris Paul, James Harden, Ariza, uh, Ryan Anderson, Clint Capella lineup. Um, you know, that, that, that can challenge some teams. You just really need some of those, uh, some of those guys off the bench to really step up and play a lot of, a lot of good minutes for them. Let's also keep in mind that James Harden started to fall apart down the stretch run of last season. In games 80 to 82, he was basically playing injured because he wanted to play the full season because MVPs play the whole season, at least that's what he said at the time. And then, of course, that infamous game six where I'm not sure it was as much that he disappointed, and clearly he did disappoint, but I think Part of it also that goes understated is he was just completely out of gas by that point. But the Rockets didn't just make a trade for Chris Paul. They also signed P.J. Tucker and Luke Mbamute to shore up their defense. And I think those signings will go underrated just because obviously the talk of the town in Houston is... A, the Chris Paul trade, and B, the massive James Harden extension. But adding in P.J. Tucker and Mbamute gives the Rockets a lot more flexibility on the defensive end, and I think those two signings might be really critical in Houston's bid to try and, first of all, dethrone the Spurs as the cream of the crop in the Southwest, but also to potentially challenge the Warriors in what I think would be an incredibly interesting Western Conference Finals. And if you saw in the playoffs last year, Ryan Anderson, if he's not knocking down his threes, he's pretty much unplayable. So I think, like you were mentioning, Nick, uh, PJ and and Luke and Bob Mute give the Rockets a lot more flexibility when they go small. If you just imagine a lineup of James Harden, Chris Paul, PJ Tucker at small forward, Trevor Ariza, Clint Capella, or you can sub in, uh, or you could take PJ Tucker out and put in Luke and Bob Mute, who shot a career high in threes last year. Granted, they were really, really wide open. 
but you can't give Mbamute the Tony Allen or Andre Roberson treatment that most teams do in the playoffs when you start making adjustments when the game starts slowing down. So I feel like a lot of the trade, I like a lot of the moves the Rockets did this year. They did have more depth last year, but D'Antoni usually runs with seven or eight man rotations. But now, and now I feel like they have a legitimate seven to eight man rotation. I feel like D'Antoni should expand it a little bit in the playoffs than he normally does because I think he's able to be more versatile with those smaller lineups now that he has all these plus defenders that uh, the Rockets signed for in the offseason. Yeah, that's the one thing they did is they went out and got some guys on some decent contracts that that can kind of guard multiple positions, you know, play, you know, guard some of the smaller fours and small ball fives, as well as stretch the floor a little bit, and hit some shots, at least a respectable percentage. Um, you mentioned, you know, they, they put together a solid eight or nine men rotation. You look at that bench unit, it's going to be anchored by Eric Gordon, PJ Tucker, uh, Luke Mbamute, and uh, Nene, um, which is not a terrible bench. Um, they really did a good job, obviously, with all that money that's invested at the top with, uh, you know, James Paul or James Harden, Chris Paul, and then, of course, Ryan Anderson making just under $20 million per year. You have to give it up to them. They did a good job filling out the rest of the roster with what they could. Um, they, have, they don't really have any bad contracts outside of, the, outside of Ryan Anderson. Let's move on to the Memphis Grizzlies, who lost two of their pillars in Zach Randolph and Tony Allen. Tony Allen to the Pelicans, staying in the division, and Zach Randolph to the Kings in what I think was one of the funnier stories of the offseason, namely the fact that the Kings and the Grizzlies basically just swapped six through eight on their roster with Randolph and Vince Carter going to Sacramento and Ben McElmore and Tyreek Evans coming to Memphis. But I guess the question with Memphis is how much do the losses of Tony Allen and Zach Randolph actually hurt the team? Because on the one hand, they're crucial parts of the Grizzlies' culture and their ethos, but on the other hand, they're both getting up there age-wise, and Randolph has become a bench player at this point in his career, and Tony Allen couldn't get above a minimum anywhere else in the league. But it definitely is a major change for the Grizzlies coming in the 2017-2018 season. It kind of started last year when the Grizzlies hired David Fisdale and he wanted to shoot more threes. And yes, Zach Randolph and Tony Allen, they're basically, they're grit and grind personified. They they were there for the longest time, but the Grizzlies started to shoot more threes than normal. They didn't act, they weren't, you know, car blanche with shooting the three ball, but now with Ben McLemore, it, we'll talk about the Jermichael Green debacle later, but I think this, they're just moving on to a new era. Um, Zebo and Tony Allen were getting up there in age. Um, Vince, I, I was kind of surprised they didn't keep Vince Carter, who is still somehow a productive player at 40 years old, which is one of the more incredible things that I've seen in my time watching the NBA. But, um, yeah, uh, th- I think this is just more of a sign that they're just shifting the play style more than anything in Memphis, uh, more f- instead of having the two bigs. And I know Randolph came off the bench the majority last year, but I think this is just more of a sign that the team is moving in further and further in the direction that David, that uh, Coach Fisdell wants them to move into. Yeah, this is definitely more of a hit to the team culture than it probably is to the basketball team. As you know, they've all said they're getting up there in age. And also, when you're paying Chandler Parsons $23 million a year, you kind of have to let some of those guys go. Talk about Ben McElmore and Tyreek Evans coming over. Um, they should be able to help out quite a bit on the wing there. Um, obviously, you're hoping you know Chandler Parsons bounces back um, and can play some minutes at the four after letting Zebo go. But that, that's what a lot of their team hinges on is can Chandler Parsons live up to you know like 75% of his contract because he really is kind of hamstrung them on what they can do with the rest of their roster when they're paying him that much money to sit on the bench um, and be injured. So yeah, they they, get, they lost some pillars there on their team culture, but I, I don't know that it really moves the needle much as far as where they're going to finish in the Western Conference. And JC mentioned the. Michael Green debacle. So let's get into that now. Basically, I would be really shocked if Jermichael Green did not play for the Grizzlies next season, just because at this point there really isn't anywhere else he could go that has enough cap space to sign him. But especially given that the Grizzlies seemed pretty intent on letting Randolph and Tony Allen and to some extent as well Vince Carter leave in free agency, I just don't understand why they didn't walk up to Jermichael Green's agent on July 1st and say, hey, here's four years, $44 million. 
because I feel like that would have gotten it done, especially given how inactive the restricted free agency market was this offseason. And in particular, as Jordan already mentioned, the restricted free agency market for big men. So I guess the question in my mind isn't as much, does Jermichael Green play in Memphis next season? Because I don't think he's really going to play anywhere else. The question is, do the Grizzlies have any chance at keeping him beyond next year? And the biggest issue there is that three years from now, the Grizzlies are paying $83 million to four players, Chandler Parsons, Mike Conley, Marcus All, and Wade Baldwin. And I just don't see how this team is going to rebuild with that kind of salary on the books. And unless Marcus All manages to hold off aging better than pretty much anyone besides Tim Duncan and LeBron James, I just don't see how they're still going to be a playoff contender in three years when they still have all that money on the books. Yeah, and I'm I'm totally surprised too, Nick, that the Grizzlies didn't, you know, immediately offer Jamichael Green, um, a, basically a four. I would say, like you said, a four-year, forty-four million dollar deal would have been a valuable contract for Jamichael Green. He started seventy-five games for the Grizzlies last year at power forward, ahead of Zach Randolph. He shot thirty-seven percent from three, albeit on smaller attempts there really aren't a lot of options for cap strap teams like the grizzlies and possibly the pelicans who we'll talk about later so whenever you're cap strapped like that you really have to sign the players that you already have you kind of have you get you have to get really creative under when you're paying a lot of money to especially three players like chandler parsons Mike Conley and Marcus All. Um, there, it's going to be really interesting to see what the Grizzlies do over the next few years because th- they just really didn't have any more options, and it's kind of puzzling why they didn't assign Jermichael Green soon. I saw on Bleacher Report that recently, the latest that I've heard on saw on Bleacher Report was they offered him a two-year deal. I, you're probably he's probably going to have to take the qualifying offer and become an unrestricted free agent next summer. But um, it really, it still is really, it's interesting to say the least the course of action uh, the Grizzlies took I'm actually going to kind of take an opposite stance here and I actually like Jermichael Green I think he's a really useful guy as a fourth or fifth starter in today's NBA oh yeah me too but I, I actually don't really blame them for not throwing a four-year deal, you know, at 11 million per year, somewhere in that uh, market. I think they're a team that, you know, they know that they're kind of on a crash course, starts having to tear it down and rebuild. As you mentioned, they have so much money tied up in Conley, Parsons, and Gasol. I wouldn't be shocked if, you know, after next season or maybe even that third year, they're, they're trying to tear it down. And then you look at Jermichael Green's already 27 years old. Um, you know, by the time that third season rolls around, he's 29, 30. Are you, is he really a guy that's going to be part of that rebuild, especially 10 million a year? Um, you know, I don't know. I think he's, you know, kind of a, a, an average player at best, um, or an average starter at best, I should say. So I, I can kind of see why why they aren't. They don't seem like a, a poorly run organization. You know, they made that grit and grind era, you know, extend three, four years probably past what anyone thought. Um, but I do think that they know that they're kind of on the crash course towards a rebuild. Um, especially with Mike Conley having a, an early termination option on that last year. Really, after that third year, there's not a lot on the books. I think they, they will probably try and embrace that new future at that point. Let's move on to the New Orleans Pelicans. They really didn't do much this offseason, but then again, they really didn't have much opportunity to do much this offseason because they sort of locked themselves into their current team with the DeMarcus Cousins trade at the All-Star break. But they did at least add Rajon Rondo, which is an interesting decision. Let's just put it that way. A large part of that is probably because he got along really well with DeMarcus Cousins during their year together in Sacramento. And if the Pelicans want to try and keep Boogie around, maybe it'll be helpful to have someone like Rondo on the team. But in terms of on-the-court play, I just think Rondo is... One of the worst fits they could have gotten at point guard for a team that desperately needs shooting, they instead got a guy who his three-point shooting numbers for the past couple of years have really been a mirage just because he takes about two and a half a game and makes one per game. So a little under 40% shooting, sure, but the other 40 possessions of the game, the teams are just leaving him completely wide open and there's nothing he can do about it. As a Bulls fan, I actually got to watch Rondo a little bit last year. 
Um, I think this signing came down to probably two things. Uh, one, like you mentioned, he got along really well with Boogie in Sacramento, so I think that was a big part of it. And two, I think they, similar to the the Hart and Chris Paul pairing, they're hopefully hoping that Rondo can take a little bit of that pressure off of Drew Holiday and keep him healthy. You know, they just invested that huge hundred plus million dollar contract with uh, into him. Uh, maybe they're thinking that if they can take him off the ball for a little bit of time, you know, each game that can maybe help keep his legs fresh and keep him on the court. I just I don't understand the signing personally alvin gentry said that drew holiday is going to move to the two now and rajon rondo starting and the other signings they made i just don't understand how there's going to be any spacing on the court i wasn't F when the trade first happened for Boogie last year for DeMarcus Cousins, I was thinking it could work, but then after watching them, and I know they played better uh, the last few weeks of the season, I just still don't understand how that's going to work in today's modern NBA. And the Rondo signing, like you were saying, the three-point shooting's a mirage. He's still a really below-average defender. And that's putting it lightly. I know they didn't have a lot of options because what they didn't have a lot of options. So if they had no choice but to sign Drew Holiday to that max contract. But you're you're putting him at the two where that's not where one he's undersized and two that's not his best position. He's better served at the point guard where he's a much better defender and he's not over and he's not overwhelmed by size or strength. I just I. I get that the Pelicans didn't have a lot of options because they have so much money wrapped up in DeMarcus Cousins, Anthony Davis, Andrew Holiday. But I mean, it's going to be interesting to watch, but I think it's going to be a lot like what we expected from the Bulls last year when they signed Dwayne Wade and Rajon Rondo and there just wasn't enough spacing on the court, even though they got up to that strong, even though they got up to that strong start at the beginning of the season. I just, uh, I just, it's going to be, the spacing is just going to be, it's going to be rough to watch on offense and it's going to be interesting to see what they do at the trade deadline i think part of it also goes to the fact that they're maybe trying to think you know and in terms of looking ahead of you're trying to bring demarcus cousin back maybe they're trying to say hey look we're willing to go out and get guys to try and be competitive um if they can you know maybe finish the year on a hot streak then go into free agent meetings you know like hey we've shown we'll go get rondo um we'll spend money to try and try and at least make it a contender we're not just going to sit in the lottery that's you know, I think they still probably will be in the lottery, but I think that's maybe their rationale behind it. Um, it's the only thing that really makes sense because I don't think anyone really believes Rondo's leading any team deep in the playoffs. The Pelicans might have the worst wing rotation in the league next year, and that's saying a lot given that there are quite a few teams that are going to have worse records than them next year. But especially after the Solomon Hill injury, the opening night starter at small forward is going to be... Darius Miller, who they just signed from Europe, Tony Allen, who they just signed from the Grizzlies, or Etwan Moore, who's a six foot four shooting guard. That's how bad the wing situation is in New Orleans. And it's not just that, it's that Alvin Gentry is a really great offensive coach who loves to run a pace and space system. He spent a lot of time in Phoenix under Mike D'Antoni came to New Orleans from the Golden State Warriors, who obviously have a very movement-heavy system, and he just does not have the pieces to run the kind of system that he wants to run. And it's going to be interesting to see if Gentry is one of the first, if not the first, coach fired next season just because his strengths as a coach are completely incongruent with the talent that the Pelicans have. Let's move on to the last team in the division, the San Antonio Spurs, and they re-signed their two oldest players in Manu Ginobili and Pau Gasol. Manu to a two-year, $5 million deal that I think is a pretty great contract for a guy in Manu who can still step it up as a top-notch six-man in the playoffs. But they also signed Pau Gasol to a three-year, $48 million contract that just does not make any sense to me at all. Yeah, and the third year of that deal is partially guaranteed, but still they had him opt out of a $16 million salary for this upcoming season, only to sign him for 16 mil per year on this new deal. I don't understand that contract particularly because Pau Gasol is 37 and that he is going to be edging close to 40 by the time that contract ends, but... um. I've I've learned a long time ago, I guess, not to question the Spurs. I mean, Pau Gasol is still a productive player. They're probably still going to uh, go with the uh, too big lineup. I think uh, their other signee, Rudy Gay, is probably going to be coming off the bench. But uh, 
the the contract was a little bit puzzling. They let some they let some key younger players go that I I thought maybe they could have kept uh, Jonathan Simmons. I know Dwayne Dedman had so I've listened to podcasts where writers were mentioning that they've heard that Dedman has had problems with the coaching staff. So it didn't surprise me that that he went on and left. But uh, aside from the Pau Gasol contract, I really couldn't see any other options the Spurs had this summer. They couldn't unload Lamarcus Aldridge after the abysmal playoff performance that he had. But they're still probably you could pencil in a pencil them in as a top four seed in the West, fifty wins, and uh, the machine's just going to keep going. Yeah, I'll I'll definitely be late coming around on the Spurs when they finally get bad because I'm going to predict them to be pretty much a playoff team until they prove me otherwise. Um, Pau Gasol, I mean, yeah, it's it's a huge contract number, but you know, I would you rather sign you know Jamichael Green or someone like that? I think you, you're better off with that that current roster going for the guys that can help you in the playoffs. Uh, one thing that you know kind of is a little bit of a positive is last year Pau Gasol, you know, shot 53 percent from the three point line on one and a half attempts per game. Uh, so maybe if he can kind of keep extending that range, he'll extend his career. You know, he still averaged right around a block a game. So I, you know, it's a lot of money to pay a, a, a backup and kind of a rotation starter. But if he can, you know, stay around that that twelve point eight rebounds and have a block and a three pointer per game, he he can definitely be useful in that system. And the league's better when Manu's back. We all love Manu Ginobili. Oh, definitely. As for the other major signing of their offseason in Rudy Gay, I think it's incredibly unlikely that he starts for this team, especially given that he's coming off that Achilles injury. And even though he is supposed to be healthy for the start of the season especially given that he's on the wrong side of 30 at this point and that Achilles injuries tend to have more difficult recoveries than most other ligament injuries at this point in medical science's history. But Rudy Gay for two years and $17 million is a really great contract, even if he's only 70% of what he was last year going forward. And I think a lot of it is that people tend to focus more on what Rudy Gay was during his really rough stretch in Toronto than what he has been for the past few years in Sacramento. And during his time in Sacramento, he's been far more efficient than he's been on the offensive end at any other point in his career. And he's at least put in more effort on the defensive end in Sacramento than he was known for in Toronto. And if anyone's going to be able to get the most out of Rudy Gay coming off injury and on the wrong side of 30, it's going to be Greg Popovich. And it's especially going to be Greg Popovich in the Spurs system, where Rudy goes from being the second option on offense in Sacramento to a sixth man who will be able to score when he's in the game and otherwise doesn't really have to focus on all that much. And he could play in smaller lineups, too. Yeah, outside of LaMarcus Aldridge, there's really not a lot there at the four. I mean, unless you're one of those, you know, Bertans fans, which I know he's he's an okay player, but I, I think they're counting on Rudy Gay filling up some of those small ball four minutes. I mean, you know, why not? Especially on that contract, I've seen the Spurs do a lot more with a lot less than Rudy Gay. You could uh, spare Kawhi some minutes at the small forward also as well. I think Rudy Gay is has a great is on a great uh, value contract. And like you said, whoever if anyone could get the best out of Rudy Gay, it's probably going to be Greg Popovich. But I I really want to see if the Spurs do go smaller more often. I think that's what the signing was mainly for. All right, let's move on from reviewing the off season for the teams in the Southwest to. A more focused preview on the 2017-18 season, and we've gotten into a few of these points already, but for the other division previews, I've been doing one big question for each team, and I think the biggest question for both of the two best teams in this division is, first of all, who will be the better regular season team between the Rockets and the Spurs? And I think it's going to be the Spurs just because they have continuity on their side, even though I think Chris Paul and James Harden will eventually fit really well together. I could also see the first 20 games being a real struggle for the Rockets as they try and work out how much Harden and CP3 will have the ball in their hands to start the season. But what are you guys' thoughts on who's going to be the better regular season team next year between the top two teams in this division? I think the Houston Rockets are going to be the better regular season team. And I know they're going to probably have some 
they're going to start off slow to start the season, uh, trying to figure out how Chris Paul and James Harden can share the court together. But I think, I actually think it's going to be a lot quicker than people think. As I mentioned earlier, I think they have enough complementary skills to play off the ball. And with the Spurs, you know, um, Tony Parker still recovering from that quad injury. I know everybody's high on DeJounte Murray, but I really think we're expecting too much of him. I don't think he can make this leap to being a above average starter that a lot of people see in him. I think I think he's going to be good eventually, but I think we're expecting way too much too soon. And also the Spurs are getting a year older. You know, Pau Gasol's 37. I mean, the 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 way I see the Spurs being having more regular season wins, especially with how Pop manages minutes, is this Kawhi Leonard takes if it's even possible, takes another step. Can LaMarcus Aldridge uh, regain some of that form, maybe in Portland, that he has definitely lost coming over to San Antonio? So I have I have a lot of questions about the Spurs. I know that I said earlier you can't question the Spurs in the system, but I still think there are questions to where, in terms of who's going to have a better regular season between the Rockets and Spurs, I actually think the Spurs have a lot more questions to answer than, than the Rockets, especially with a lot of the things that Mike Tony can do with a more versatile multi-positional defenders yeah I'm not as worried about the the Rockets having a long adjustment period I think they'll they'll figure it out pretty quick I think a team like uh, you know the, the Celtics will have a lot more of an adjustment period than the Rockets will um you put two great players like Harden and Chris Paul on the floor they're you know very very heady players as well that think the game um I think they'll figure it out I have right as of now I reserve my right to to change but as of now I have Houston uh finishing second with 59 wins and Spurs finishing third in the west with 56 so I guess given that both of you thought that the Rockets would be better during the regular season, the next question is really more for me, I guess, which is who do you think will be the better team in the playoffs? And I think the Rockets are going to be a really dangerous playoff team. And honestly, I think if the Warriors have a poorly timed injury or if they have a couple of bad games from Steph Curry and or Kevin Durant and or Klay Thompson and or Draymond Green, that the Warriors (laughs) could really have a challenge on their hands with the Rockets. I think at the end of the day, the way that the Rockets play is an incredibly high variance style of basketball. And if Houston is just knocking down their threes for four out of seven games, I think it's incredibly unlikely that they could take down the Warriors. But I also think that they are better equipped to do that than honestly any other team in the NBA. Yeah, I have, surprise, surprise, I have the Rockets as the better playoff team than San Antonio. I don't know if, it'll be interesting to see if Mike D'Antoni plays at the pace that he did last year, especially now given that Chris Paul is 32 years old and six feet and under point guards typically don't age well based on NBA history. But if anyone can defy logic, it's Chris Paul. So I don't know if they're going to, if they're going to shoot as many threes with the frequency. They're still going to take a ton of threes. So um we'll see how they are against the Warriors I just think like I was mentioning earlier Mike D'Antoni can have some more versatility in his seven-man rotation or an eight-man rotation should he want to expand it and in case you know Ryan Anderson has a bad game or something like that they can just plug in a bunch they could plug in PJ Tucker or Luke and Bob Mute or put Trevor Ariza at the four and then while having two of the top seven players on the court I just think they're way more they'll they will be well more more equipped than the Spurs to make a deep run in the playoffs. I know I was high on them last year, and I was completely dead wrong about the Spurs-Rocket series last year. I predicted Rockets in five, and they made me look stupid. But I think that they are well more equipped this year with versatile rotation players this time around than the Spurs are. Yeah, there, there's a little bit of boom bust with uh, with the Rockets. You know, if they have a, a game where they go cold from deep for a couple of games, then it gets a little interesting. But but I do think that the Rockets are the better team. Uh, you know, that's not to knock the Spurs. I think in a seven-game series, they're still a very, very tough matchup. Just, you know, with their depth, the way they can use those different lineups. And then, you know, of course, their coach they have on the sideline. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm pretty much all in on the Rockets. I think if anyone has a chance of taking down the Warriors in the West, it's it's the Rockets. And the biggest issue that the Rockets offense ran into during the playoffs last season was that teams would just give them all the space they wanted to take mid-range shots. And in case you weren't aware, Chris Paul is one of the five best mid-range shooters in the NBA at the moment. So 
he will take those shots all day long. And even if the Rockets might not want to have the mid-range game be a large part of their offense, if you have someone like Chris Paul on your team, you can still be efficient in mid-range shooting just because CP3 is so good at that particular shot. But let's move down the list to the next team. And my question about the Memphis Grizzlies is, can they make the playoffs? And we talked about this a little bit earlier with the departures of Zach Randolph and Tony Allen. I'm not sure the Grizzlies really got noticeably worse in terms of their on-court product. But I think the problem for them making the playoffs next year is that the rest of the Western Conference just got a whole lot better around them. And so the competition for those last few seeds in the playoffs has really heated up. So even if Memphis didn't really take a step back, they sort of effectively took a step back because everybody else around them took a huge step forward. I still see the Grizzlies making the playoffs just because of what you were saying about the Spurs earlier with continuity. Mike Conley and uh, Marc Gasol have been there their whole careers together. Um, they're kind of expanding to a new style. Marc Gasol, I think, can age pretty well now that he's taking more threes. I mean, his first eight seasons, he only made 12. And then last season, he made 104. And Mike Conley just continues to be one of the more underrated players in the NBA. And... We'll see what the, it's weird. I'm still a believer in Ben McLemore, at least as a rotation NBA player. Nick, as you saw him in Sacramento, um, from February to April, he shot 45% from three on a 3.8 attempts. And he was looking like Dave Yeager was finally getting through to him. So there's still some things there where I could see Memphis still being a consistent, maybe not the 50 win team that we've seen him just churn out every single year, but I definitely see them in the 48 win range. And while the West, while all Western, the all, all of the Western conference teams have gotten better over the summer, I'm not so sure the bottom half from seeds five through eight, I'm not so sure they're as stout as say, the Rockets, the Warriors, the Thunder, and then the Spurs, that would be my top four. Um, I'm not so sure they're as strong as the bottom as the bottom four. There's still some questions with teams like Minnesota. Will Utah take a step back? But will the Clippers, how slow of a start will they get off to with the Blake Griffin injury and he won't be able to come back until December? The constant there remains the Grizzlies, and that's why I think that they could still make the playoffs this year. You know, it, it pains me to say it um, because I don't think there's a bigger Mike Conley fan in the in the world than me. Um, but I have the Grizzlies missed in the playoffs. I have them finishing as a nine seed right now. Um, like you alluded to, it's not like they got, you know, that much worse, but there's just, you know, some of those teams I have ahead of them, you know, the, the Nuggets, the Blazers. I, I do believe the Timber will be better. Um, I don't think the Clippers are going to slide as far as a lot of teams or a lot of people think they will. Um, I just think there's so much competition in there that they're going to be on the outside looking in. But I do think they'll be in the contention there for the eight seed, but there's just so many teams around them that got better that I, I, I I think they take a little bit of a step back from what we've seen in the past. I think they'll be one of the last two seeds in the Western Conference playoffs. I think on the one hand, they didn't really improve their roster much in terms of free agent signings. But then again, it would be almost impossible for them to get less from Chandler Parsons than they got last year. So that's one area in which they can improve they also had a really good record against above 500 teams last year, but lost a lot of games that they honestly shouldn't have to just worse teams. And there's also an element to which Marcus Gasol really had to adjust to a very new offense under Coach Fisdale, and he might be a little more comfortable with that offense going into next season. I think there's also an element to which the Grizzlies have a much higher floor than, say, the Timberwolves or the Nuggets. Like, I don't see the Grizzlies being a 35-win team, barring significant injury, but I think it's possible, given that the Timberwolves didn't live up to expectations last year and didn't live up to expectations the year before— and didn't live up to expectations in terms of their point differential consistently during the Kevin Love era. I think it's possible that the Grizzlies can make it into the playoffs just because they're going to be a pretty solid team, and there are far more questions about the other potential newcomers in the Western Conference playoff picture that I don't really think it's above 50% chance that the Grizzlies fall out of the playoff picture. Moving on to the New Orleans Pelicans, and I guess you could 
ask the question of whether or not they'll make the playoffs. I don't think they will, but you guys might feel differently. My main question with the Pelicans is, will they trade DeMarcus Cousins this season? And I think that that is a lot more likely than people are willing to admit, just because Del Demps basically has been hanging on by a thread in New Orleans for at least the past three years and sort of saved his job with the DeMarcus Cousins trade. And the Anthony Davis-DeMarcus Cousins pairing started off pretty poorly. They got much better down the stretch of the season, especially on the defensive end, where they were actually a really good team towards the end of last year. But the problem is that everybody else on that team, besides their big three of Anthony Davis, DeMarcus Cousins, and Drew Holiday, is an average NBA player at best. And a lot of their minutes are going to go to some really questionable players, especially on the wing, where they really just don't have much of anything after the Solomon Hill injury. Well, if you were wondering if I felt any different about the Pelicans making the playoffs, nope, I do not. (laughs) And that's why I also think the Pelicans will trade Boogie at the trade deadline. I really am not a fan of this roster construction. And by the way, we missed a signing yesterday. They signed Dante Cunningham. I know that's not really going to do much for their ring rotation. They brought him back. But I just, I'm not a fan of the roster construction. I just can't see how they're going to space the floor. They really don't have enough shooters. Anthony Davis and DeMarcus Cousins are going to have a help defender in their pocket every time they go to the basket or DeMarcus Cousins post up. It's, I just, I just don't see it ending well for the Pelicans. And beyond that, it's going to be interesting to see what the future of Anthony Davis in New Orleans is going to be if the Pelicans trade DeMarcus Cousins. But I agree with you, Nick. I think that this trade, that this, uh, them trading DeMarcus Cousins is more of a possibility than people realize or are willing to admit. I really think if they do not get off to a strong start, to uh, start off the season if they're like 500 or like a few games below 500 by the start of february expect some adrian warjanowski uh woge bombs uh, about teams taking calls for uh teams calling the pelicans for demarcus cousins i think is really is a strong chance is going to happen um i'm on the other side i actually unless they just completely are a disaster right from the start i think it's kind of unlikely they trade boogie i like i said before i think they're going to do everything they can to try and finish on a high note to try and you know, bring Boogie back as a free agent, um, especially because, you know, if you do end up trading Boogie, what does that say for Anthony Davis when he comes up in the next few years? Is he going to want to stick around and go through, you know, another phase of the rebuild? Um, so I, I think that just the sheer fact that they have Anthony Davis and DeMarcus Cousins is going to will them to enough wins where they're in kind of in, in the mix for the eight seed in the West, um, that I think there's a good chance they both finish out the year there and they, they finish just, just good enough to miss out on a good, to miss out on a good pick, but just right outside of the playoffs. Wow. What a totally lovely situation for any New Orleans Pelicans fans. That sounds like just the best possible time. (laughs) All right. Last team in the division and last question before we go on to a future outlook beyond the 2017-2018 season. And we already got into this in pretty extensive detail in the Mavericks section, but what are Dennis Smith's chances of winning Rookie of the Year? And... I think that right now he's probably, if not the front runner, then certainly second in the running for Rookie of the Year behind Lonzo Ball. And granted, that's a ridiculous statement because we have seen neither of them play a single NBA game. But I just think that a lot of how Rookie of the Year votes are calculated comes down to opportunity. And Dennis Smith is an incredibly talented player in a system that will do a really good job of emphasizing his strengths and helping to hide his weaknesses. And he's going to put up some serious numbers in Dallas next season. And I think Lonzo Ball is going to have somehow even more opportunity than Dennis Smith. And that alone might be enough to lead him to Rookie of the Year. But I'm also not sure if Lonzo Ball is going to be able to score effectively enough to get Rookie of the Year votes. And I'm not worried at all about Dennis Smith Jr.'s ability to score points in bunches next year. I would agree with everything you just said there. Um, but the one thing that a lot of people are forgetting is that Ben Simmons is eligible for Rookie of the Year this year. And that would be my pick for Rookie of the Year. Yes, yes. 
See, my problem with Ben Simmons as Rookie of the Year is the same thing as my problem with Markel Fultz for Rookie of the Year, which is just that they're going to cannibalize each other's chances at winning that award. I think we saw that a little bit with Kevin Durant and Steph Curry last season, although Steph Curry didn't have as spectacular of a year as he did in 2015-16, and there was a very small chance that he was going to win MVP anyway, especially after Durant joined the team. But I think it's a similar principle in that some people in Philly are going to say Markel Fultz is the best rookie on the team, and some people are going to say Ben Simmons is the best rookie on the team, unless one of the two of them is truly, truly transcendent. I just think that they're going to hurt each other's opportunities for the award enough that someone like Dennis Smith or Lonzo Ball is going to have a better chance than either Fultz or Simmons. Oh, I, I am all aboard the Ben Simmons train. I think he's going to be a transcendent talent. I think he really separates himself this year. And I mean, Mark Elfold is a great prospect, but Ben Simmons is a completely different animal. See, I, I thought I was going to be the only Jordan on this podcast plugging in Ben Simmons, but I am with Jordan on this and people are forgetting since Ben Simmons went out the whole year, I think Pete, there's kind of been this little re- reverse in thought on how good Ben Simmons could be. There's just not many 6'10 point guards who have the speed that he does the athleticism that he does and the vision that he has and i think he can really have a i mean we throw around the word transcendent a lot but he really has all the tools i think to be a transcendent player markel fultz is the more nba ready with the higher floor but i really think brett brown head coach brett brown is committed to having ben simmons as the point guard he said as much earlier today in the philly luncheon meeting i'm not gonna pick uh, ben Simmons to win rookie of the year. I'm just saying that I think he is a serious front runner for it. My uh, top three going into the season would be Dennis Smith, Lonzo Ball, and Ben Simmons. And I know I've said Markel Fultz was, it, to me, Markel Fultz was in a tier of his own in this draft class, but I think Ben Simmons is going to have the ball slightly more than in his hands than Markel Fultz will. And Fultz is going to have an adjustment playing off the ball. And uh, Simmons really isn't that good off the ball because of his jump shot. But don't sleep on Ben Simmons. But if I had to pick, I'd go with Dennis Smith Jr. I just don't think Lonzo has the quick first step to score consistently at the rim. Dennis Smith can just get to the rim at will. And in that pick and roll system, he's going to be super, super effective with all of the NBA talent around him. There's a lot of players on the Mavs that I like uh, that can really that are really going to help Dennis Smith, I think, win Rookie of the Year. I think he would be the front runner. But don't sleep on Ben Simmons. Let's remember that Rick Carlisle turned J.J. Barea and Seth Curry into solid starting point guards. Yes. So it's going to be really, really incredible to see what he can do with Dennis Smith Jr. And while we're talking about Dennis Smith Jr., let's transition into taking a look at the future of this division beyond next season. And I think the biggest or most immediate question on that front is... First of all, can the Rockets convince Chris Paul to stick around? But second of all, and probably more pertinently, because I think it's really unlikely at this point that Chris Paul leaves the Rockets after one season unless things completely fall apart. Really, the bigger question, I think, for the Rockets' future is, can they get another superstar? And with the Rockets, first of all, can they convince Chris Paul to stick around? I say almost certainly yes. But second of all, can they get another superstar to join the team in the future? And that's, I think, where things get interesting. Yes, I do think that they will convince Chris Paul to stick around. I think this will be the team Chris Paul finishes his uh, career with. Will they get another superstar? That's going to be pretty interesting because they're going to have to do some maneuvering. How much money will Chris Paul re-up for next summer? They already have, they already gave James Harden the huge 200 million, 200 million plus uh, contract extension. Um, can they get rid of Ryan Anderson's contract, which they tried to throw around in this Carmelo Anthony trade? But the thing is, nobody wants that albatross of a contract. And the reason the Rockets are trying to get in these three to four team type of trades is because they have no more assets after trading for Chris Paul. So can they get another superstar? I mean, who knows? Uh, Paul George, and I know that's a riveting answer, but Paul George seems dead set on LA still, even after being traded to OKC. Seems like LeBron has his sights on 
on the Lakers too, based on everything we've been reading and listening. Can they, will they try to angle for DeMarcus Cousins when he becomes an unrestricted free agent? There's just, a, I think there's a lot more questions before the ultimate question that needs to be answered during this season. And I think a few of them have to do with financial questions. And I just don't know if they can get another superstar. I think that's going to be a little bit tough for them to achieve. Um, for the first part of the question, yeah, I, I do think CP3 sticks around, um, unless it just completely blows up. Um, you know, Chris Paul and James Harden, they wanted to make this happen where they were playing on the same team, and they, they pulled some strings to get it done. Um, so I, I can't see them not running it back at least one more year after this one, if unless, like I said, unless it just completely blows up. Um, as far as the second part about adding a star, I, I think it's possible, but it, it can't happen until they can find someone to take on Ryan Anderson's contract. They just they just can't afford another big name player with him on the books. Um, so maybe the one thing where the where the landscape shifts a little bit in the season is maybe maybe you can throw a, a first round pick with Ryan Anderson and convince one of these bad teams with cap space to take him off the books and in, in a three way trade. But but nothing can happen until Ryan Anderson gets moved, and I I I wouldn't want my Bulls to take on the contract even for a first round pick. All right, next question in terms of future outlook. How quickly can Dallas rebuild around Dennis Smith Jr.? And I think that also leads into other questions about where the projected bottom three teams in the Southwest Division for 2017-18 will be in three years. And as I brought up earlier, Memphis is going to be in a very, very tough cap situation in a few years. They also owe their 2019 pick. That's going to be a huge blow to them. And I think that of the three teams at the bottom of this division, that Dallas will be the first one to make the playoffs again. And I think part of that is just that I'm a really big believer in Dennis Smith, and not just in Dennis Smith, but in Dennis Smith as a Dallas Maverick, because I think people really underrate how important the team situation is to a rookie's future success. And the most obvious talking point on this front is Kawhi Leonard. I think he'd be out of the league by now if the Magic had drafted him instead of the Spurs. And I think Dennis Smith's chances of becoming a superstar are a lot higher now that he's in Dallas as opposed to if he'd ended up in New York and had all the pressure heaped on him from day one to be a superstar right out of the gate might have been a more difficult situation. So just because Memphis's cap situation going forward is horrible and I just don't trust the front office in New Orleans to do anything right, even though I think they won the DeMarcus Cousins trade, I think Dallas is the first of these teams to return to the playoffs. I think they're on the right track. Um, I don't know if they're going to make the playoffs this year, uh, but they can rebuild quickly because I do think now that Dennis Smith Jr. is in Dallas, I think he's going to be... We're going to look back at this draft class five years from now and think that Dennis Smith is one of the three best players from this class. Um, the, Dallas is kind of like sneakily... Re, they've rebuilt in a way under while signing Dirk Nowitzki to these cheap deals to where they can compete sooner than expected. Harrison Barnes turned out to be a really solid player for the Mavericks last year, and people are finally realizing that Seth Curry is an NBA player. I always thought he was a really good shooter and a good NBA an NBA ready player. I don't know why it took so long for him to get a a long a good deal finally. Um if the Mavericks can retain Nerlens Noel, there's some pieces the Mavericks have that I could see them rebuilding more quickly than uh, most teams. Um and it all hinges around Dennis Smith because we again going back to the whole pick and roll thing, the whole pick and roll system. I think Dennis Smith is just tailor made for it and I think he's going to have success right out of the gates and he's just only going to get better every year cuz team situation as you were mentioning Nick, it, it matters when, when it comes to the development of 19, 20, 21 year olds. Yeah, I mean, I think you just look at, you know, Dennis Smith, Harrison Barnes, and, you know, assuming Nerlens Noel sticks around, um, that, that three right there is a better young core than a lot of other teams around the league. You know, even with that said, though, I, I still think they're, like most rebuilding teams, they're kind of on that three to five year window for after the Golden States and the Cleveland's kind of take a step back towards the, towards the middle of the league. So they're still three to three to five years out. But the one thing I wouldn't count out is, you know, Mark Cuban's a pretty forward thinking owner. If something happens and they start slow and they end up looking like they're going to be really bad this year, I I wouldn't put it past him to maybe have them dip down in the lot 
lottery for one year, especially with lottery reform possibly on the horizon. I wouldn't be surprised to see Cuban take advantage of that, maybe try and go get one more, uh, you know, lottery type draft pick to pair with Dirk and his, his, his farewell tool next year, next year on his five million, five million dollar player option. So yeah, I, I do think there is something to having a winning culture there, but I, I don't know. I, I have the, the Mavericks pegged for about 30 wins this year is all. I, I'm not as high on them as it seems like a lot of guys are. I just wanted to clarify. I don't think the Mavericks are going to make the playoffs this season. I was thinking more about, say, the 2019-20 season. Oh, okay. I see. And I think the Mavericks are a lot better positioned for the 2019-20 season than either the Pelicans or the Grizzlies. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Oh, and as far as the as far as the Grizzlies go, I think they kind of have to look at tearing it down within the next three to five years. Um, that Grizzlies pick you were mentioning earlier, it's top 14 protected in a 2019. And if I were the Grizzlies, I mean, if it's starting to look like it's going to fizzle out and the era is coming to a close, I mean, you might have to start looking at tearing it down and maybe keeping that draft pick within the one to 14 range, which is where the pick is protected and kind of look towards uh, building the future because they have all that money committed to Mike Conley, who, by the way, is going to turn 30 in a few weeks. And Marcus all, like you were saying, like we were saying earlier, can he still age well um, going into his late 30s in into that five year deal that he signed two summers ago? Will Chandler Parsons at least stay relatively healthy. I'm not so sure about that either. He's 28 years old now and has had a few injury riddled years. So I, the Grizzlies and the Pelicans are the two teams that I'm looking at over the next few years to see if they're on the possible path of uh, blowing it up, as Kevin O'Connor would say. Yeah, the Grizzlies are definitely on a on a course to go the blow up route. I have no doubt. Um, the Pelicans, it, it all kind of comes down to what happens with Boogie this year. Um, I think if he, if he's somewhere else next season, then yeah, they're, they're one of those teams that in three to five years is in the bottom of the lottery rebuilding. But if they can keep him, um, I think you can do enough with him and Anthony Davis in the city of New Orleans to maybe go get one more big free agent where you can make a little bit of noise. But I, I would still much prefer the, the Mavericks rebuilding situation to either of them. My problem with Memphis is I'm not sure they can tear it down because for them to tear it down, they have to find someone to take on Chandler Parsons contract and then they have to, either find someone to take on one of Gasol or Conley's contracts or just recognize that they're going to only be able to do a partial rebuild and just have Gasol and Conley stick around as elder statesmen. And I think just given the fact that Randolph and Tony Allen left this offseason and that the grit and grind mentality was such a big part of what really endeared the Grizzlies team to fans in Memphis, I just don't think that the Grizzlies are going to have it in them to trade away Marcus All, especially since he went to high school in Memphis and has played his whole NBA career there. I just find it hard to believe that they would be willing to move on from him. But on the other hand, if they can't move on from one or both of Conley or Gasol, they're almost certainly stuck with the Parsons contract. And at that point, they just really don't have the flexibility to do a teardown and rebuild. Yeah, that's a fair point. That's why it's going to be interesting to see what they do over the next three to five years. Um, I still think they can still be somewhat of a consistent playoff team, but at what point is the era, I guess, going to start fizzling out? This is my main question, because I think it's coming soon. Yeah, they might ride out these next few years of Conley and Gasol, but the rebuild is, is on the horizon in Memphis. There's, there's no way around it, um, even if they have to do it with Chandler Parsons' contract. My worry is the 2019 pick. That that's where it gets interesting, you know. Do they try and be as good as they can, and then after 2019, really blow it up, or you know, like you mentioned, maybe they they try and dip down low enough to get that pick um, in 2019. Uh, but yeah, they're they're a team that's they're kind of at a crossroads here, and I think they'll 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 probably head towards that rebuild sooner rather than later. All right, anything else you guys want to talk about before we wrap up here? Nope, I think we we pretty well covered it there. NBA season October 17th. Cannot wait. Yes. Um, so yeah, one thing to, you know, keep an eye on, uh, over at hashtag basketball, we're really trying to beef up our fantasy basketball coverage this year. Um, and with that, we, I will be hosting, uh, hashtag dynasty fantasy basketball. Um, we'll bring back a weekly podcast, uh, you know, looking at, you know, fantasy basketball from a dynasty and keeper perspective. Um, we're going to record our first episode this weekend. So that should be out sometime next, next week. Um, our first show, we're going to be, uh, breaking down and comparing, uh, some, some rankings for head to head and, uh, rotisserie. Um, for our Dino ranks, and we're also going to take a look at this year's lottery rookies. And then shortly after that, we'll have a second episode following where we're going to dive deep into draft strategy.
strategies for those different types of leagues, you know, your rotos, your head-to-heads, your, your rookie-only drafts. And then we're going to look at some of the non-lottery rookies from this draft and look ahead towards some of the, the key pieces in the 2018 and 2019 draft classes. Um, so very excited about that. Um, I'll be uh, co-hosting that with Sam Macy. Um, some of you guys may know him from, from the, some of the other websites that he writes on, but he will be uh, co-hosting that with us. And we are very, very excited to get that going. So if you guys have any suggestions for topic ideas that you guys want to see us talk about a cover, just hit up either of us on Twitter and uh, we'll make sure we get that done. All right. Well, they are the two Jordans, Jordan Christmas and Jordan Schultz. You can find Jordan Schultz on Twitter at Dino B-Ball, where you can also find out more news about the Dynasty podcast, as well as the hashtag Bulls podcast that already had a teaser episode on this feed earlier in the summer. We will also have a few more team-specific hashtag basketball podcasts, TBD, so be sure to be on the lookout for those. You can find Jordan Christmas on Twitter at Sports Talk Xmas, X-M-A-S, and you can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take a minute to leave a rating or a review. It really helps us in terms of spreading the word. If you have any feedback, negative, positive, neither, but you just want to say something, you can feel free to reach out to me on Twitter or send me an email at nickaj.nba at gmail.com. Be sure also to check out the hashtag basketball website, all three of us right there. And in addition to the increased Dynasty fantasy basketball coverage, we've also updated our fantasy tools. So definitely be sure to check those out. And as always, thanks so much for listening. (laughs) 